Well, good morning, everyone. I had to chuckle a little bit this morning because uh, I picked up the weekly and I thought, well, we did like a Sunday news edition of the weekly this week. It's just packed, filled uh, with all kinds of stuff. And there's one paper in there I want to draw your attention to. It's this white sheet. If you're with us online, it's in the description box. If you could help us form as a community, know how to care for you, know how to pray for you, uh, know how you would like to be involved just by filling this uh, sheet out and dropping it in the box or filling it out online and sending it in to us. That would be incredibly helpful to us. There's also lots of information in there about how we can be praying for our global partners and other ministries that are coming up in the life of Calvary Monument Bible Church. Our memory verse for this month, the month of May, is from Galatians 5.14. Let's say it together. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.14. And we've been enjoying a time of praying for our neighbors, getting to know our neighbors a little bit better, and thinking about our neighbors this past month as we have been spending 31 days intentionally praying for those who live in closest proximity and community to us. Everyone just take a deep breath with me. Do you know that taking a deep breath... Pausing to uh, take time to breathe actually helps to relieve tension and anxiety. Do you know anything about tension and anxiety in the world that we live in today? Any, any of you know anything about tension and anxiety? In case you don't, I brought something to help illustrate tension and anxiety today. Anybody see what I have here with me? This is a, it's a balloon. Um, yeah, it's a little balloon. And I wonder, as we live in this world today, and we look around and we see all the different social issues and political issues uh, that kind of envelop us and that we're faced with all the time, if we ever felt a little bit of tension or anxiety, right? And when we have tension and anxiety in our lives, often we get to a point where our bubble is burst. That tension and anxiety can't be held up within that balloon anymore, and it just pops. Now, I was excited today because I was going to have Pastor Jim come up and sit on it. But uh, <laughs> he was going to burst our bubble today. But it just so happened that it, it popped right as we blew it up. And so it's just perfect. We live in a world of tension. We feel we feel, as we sit here today, many of us, maybe we even woke up in the morning and we went and got the newspaper, or maybe we turned on the TV and we watched the news. I don't ever recommend that. I mean, I recommend knowing the news, but watching it uh, is a whole other story we can talk about. We, we maybe come today and have some tension and anxiety about the things that are going on in the world among us. There's contention Contention among people and groups of people. And if you haven't noticed in the past four to six years, that contention and that strife, it appears to be on the rise. There's political division, there's social division, economic division, division in the way that <clears throat> we understand how leadership works. There's even spiritual division in our country. And when we are confused or uneasy, Oftentimes, it's fear that comes first, 
then anxiety or anger following closely behind. Over the course of our next six weeks together, uh, we will hear and perhaps uh, even feel, uh uh-oh, Pastor Bob, I did the same thing you did last week. (laughs) I went the wrong way. Over the course of the next six weeks together, we're going to hear, perhaps even feel these emotions in the words and the oracle of the prophet Habakkuk. Is there hope in our present distress? And I believe there is. My hope is that through this study, we're going to come to see that even when God's answers aren't necessarily easy or comfortable, that they are always true and faithful to his nature as a God who always keeps his promises. Our God is able and mighty to save. Habakkuk is a book that is considered uh, pre-exilic, meaning that Habakkuk was writing his prophecy before the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians, or as he refers to them in his prophecy, the Chaldeans, they're sometimes called. In his prophecy, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been overtaken. In 722 BC, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria, and there's a growing fear among the people of Judah that perhaps they would be next. The Judean kingdom is in decline. King Josiah, the last righteous king of Judah, he has passed away. The Davidic dynasty is beginning to fade. The immoral and unjust King Jehoiakim is on the throne in Judah. And the southern Israelites are looking for alliances with all the wrong people. They're looking to Egypt. They're even looking to Assyria. The time of the Chaldeans, a a Neo-Babylonian people group who were hostile and fierce, committed to building and expanding their empire by dominating and overtaking their neighboring countries, is rising. Their king at the time is a man whose name is Nabopolassar. And the contemporaries of Habakkuk in the Bible are the prophets Nahum and Zephaniah. Now, scholars have debated the true meaning of Habakkuk's name. Not much is known about the person of Habakkuk in the Bible. There are places in the Hebrew scriptures where the root word Habak can mean to clasp or embrace. And so in this sense, Habakkuk is seen as a prophet, a poet, providing comfort to the people of Israel before a time of national tragedy. Following this meaning of his name, there are even a few rabbinical scholars who believe that Habakkuk may have been the son of the Shumanite woman. If you remember the Shumanite woman from 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha actually tells the Shumanite woman that she will habak or embrace a son in 2 Kings chapter 4 verse 16. But the word habak, it has a secondary meaning. As well, and the secondary meaning means to fold one's hands in idleness with the connotation of doing nothing. And this meaning may certainly fit the indictment 
that Habakkuk levies against God in the opening verses of his prophecy. And perhaps we are meant to understand and see both meanings of the name worked out in the prophecy. But regardless, as we explore this book together, we need to be reminded that we are exploring and learning together about a magnificent piece of literature. There's not many chapters here to read or look at. Our series is only six weeks long. And yet, what we're going to see is prophecy. We're going to see oracle. There's going to be wisdom, poetry, psalms of praise, open dialogue between man and God. There is going to be questioning. There is going to be lament. Habakkuk is disturbed with the rising idolatry among his own people. There's a religious syncretism that's going on in his own nation, a blending of religions. There's lawlessness. There's injustice among his own people. There's wickedness and there's rebellion. And rather than warning of impending divine judgment like many of the other prophets do, Habakkuk is actually calling for divine judgment as a testimony of God's faithfulness to deal with the sin and injustice that he sees all around him. While we wait for our righteous and faithful God to fully restore and put everything back in right order, how are we to live? What is Habakkuk's message for the church today? And I've stated it simply like this. The world is broken. Violence, oppression, strife, contention, destruction, sin, and death, all evident and apparent in our society. The law can't fix it. We're reminded of the law's inability to correct the wrongs of this world. We cannot legislate morality. The wickedness of the human heart without God is not able to be constrained or restrained by the power and the mind of man. This takes a supernatural power, namely the power of God in Christ Jesus. However, God is able. We will be informed of God's direct and his indirect ways of working within his creation. Sometimes directly intervening to divert impending destruction. And sometimes God allows difficulty to redirect, reorient, and reprimand evil. God hears us. There's testimony to the power of prayer and the comfort and trepidation of direct dialogue with the Almighty of all creation. God saves us. Habakkuk's book reinforces the hope that we have in God's ultimate purposes for humanity and his desire that none should perish. God will restore all things. Habakkuk's work reveals that sin and evil will not go unpunished. That wickedness and injustice must and will be held accountable. And that we are to be faithful as we patiently yet actively wait. His work is going to warn against participating in the same injustices that the Israelites and the Babylonians were guilty of participating in. Namely, greed, gluttony, consumerism, the pursuit and increase of power and prestige on earth. And so as we come to the opening words of our text this morning in Habakkuk chapter 1, there are some questions 
that remain unanswered, questions that we want to explore together. Question one, what are the living realities that have driven Habakkuk to despair? And are these realities still alive and active today? Question two, where does God direct Habakkuk's attention? By the way, these questions can be found in your note guide in your weekly. Question three, how is God going to set about bringing both judgment and restoration to his people? And question four, where does this all leave us? So as we gather to look at these words today, you want to take and open your Bibles or turn them on if they're on your device. So you can find Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Throughout our next six weeks of this study, I will be using both the ESV and the NET versions of the scriptures. And before we read, let's pray. Father, we turn to your word today in a time in our culture. That perhaps isn't so very different than Habakkuk's. We live in difficult days. We don't have to look any further than the events of last week in Buffalo. To recognize that there is still strife, contention, hatred, and violence throughout our world. Like Habakkuk, Father, our hearts break at this injustice. We are saddened, and we know your heart is saddened and grieved. And perhaps, like Habakkuk, we too have been led to sit and to look up and to ask sincerely, How long, O Lord? How long? And yet, Father, we ask those questions, being able to hold on to the hope of your son, Jesus. Habakkuk did not yet know, but we do. The power and the glory and the victory. And so while we sit in difficult days and while our distress is real and while the world around us seems to have gone mad. Let us not be ignorant of our own sins and injustices. Let us not be too quick to point out the sin of others while not inspecting our own hearts and own minds. And let us not live without hope in times of despair. Guide us to remember that our true hope is found in Christ alone. And it is in him that we can have salvation and peace with you. Guide our time together over the course of the next number of weeks as we study this prophecy. May you be glorified and may you use your word to motivate us to live out what you've called. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry out to you, violence, and you will not save? 
Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a dreaded and fearsome people. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All of their faces Forward, They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At the rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Desperate times for Habakkuk. Desperate times. Injustice is on the rise in the southern kingdom of Judah. And as we sense from the prophet's words, this is not a happy time for Israel. The northern kingdom's already been decimated and taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire. For the southern kingdom, they were on a steady descent into moral chaos. The good old days of the Davidic dynasty were seemingly behind them, and their final righteous king, Josiah, had passed away. His second son, Jehoiakim, had ascended to the throne at too young of an age, only in his 20s. His immaturity has led Judah into an even steeper decline as his governance over the kingdom regularly disadvantaged and further marginalized the Judean people. The injustices of King Jehoiakim were many, and they are written in our Bibles in 2 Kings chapter 23 and 24, and in Jeremiah's chapter 22 through 36. King Jehoiakim did evil in the sight of the Lord. He killed the innocent. He increased his own wealth by dishonest means. He increased the taxes and contributions of the people to Judah in order to support his own Egyptian alliance. He perverted, bent, and obstructed the law and justice. He murdered the prophets of God. He even attempted to execute Jeremiah. And when his attempt to execute him was unsuccessful, he decided to take Jeremiah's prophecy and to tear it apart piece by piece and burn it in the fire because he did not like what the prophet had to say. Guess what, friends? Being a prophet was not an easy job. Prophets were not well-liked. You may know they had some interesting nicknames in the Bible and find themselves in some interesting situations. 
One of the prophet's jobs was to look at his own country, his own people, and be willing to call out the sins of his nation. Do you think that was very popular? (laughs) Is it popular today? No. We don't like that. We don't like anyone who's willing to call out or identify the sins of our own nation, perhaps our own political party, whatever it might be. Even Jesus alluded to the reality that the prophet was not a very well-liked person. What did he say in Mark chapter 6, verse 4? A prophet is not without honor except where? In his own hometown, among his own people. And in his oracle, Habakkuk has situated himself squarely in the seat of the people. And he's aimed this indictment, this complaint, this lament towards both the king who is on the earthly throne, Jehoiakim, and even we see in his words the king who's on the heavenly throne, God. And as the prophet observes the condition of his own nation, he has long cried for help from the Lord, but he has felt, as we see in his words, as though he has not been heard. How frustrating is that? To cry out and to feel like you're not being heard. He's identified and he's called out violence that he's witnessed against his own people at the hands of his own king. But still, God has not yet stooped down to rectify or to save the people. And this leads to these three gigantic questions that open up the prophecy. You can see them in verses 2 and 3. What does he say? He says, how long, O Lord, must I cry for help? Why do you force me to witness and to look at injustice? Why do you put up with wrongdoing? Habakkuk feels as though his life has been overcome by these enormously difficult realities. As he looks around his world, this is what he sees. Destruction and violence, strife and contention. Do we know about any of these things today, friends? Yes. And in the prophet's words, we sense a powerlessness within his own strength to correct these societal wrongs and injustices. He wants to see these things fixed. He wants his people to be whole and well. Where might one turn to start to set straight the sin, the unrighteousness and the injustices that are ever before us? And if we think for a second that we might be able to legislate or create laws that would work our way out of this mess, Habakkuk's message carries the reminder that we witness in the Old Testament and see affirmed again in the New. The law is powerless to help. And this is largely due to the reality that the law is governed by those who are also attracted by the wiles of power, prestige, pride. What does he say in verse 4? Look at the words. So the law is what? Paralyzed. Paralyzed. The Hebrew word that is used here, I don't know um, if you've ever been up in Lefevre Hall. We have these really beautiful state-of-the-art metal chairs. You know, you know the ones I'm talking about up there in Lefevre Hall? They're, they're like from the 60s, I think. And, and in fact, they've been used so much that you pull them off the rack and just hold them and the seat goes blump. And just falls right out. 
Now, the problem with these chairs, if you've ever been up to one of the ABFs in Lefevre Hall, or if you've ever been up there sit in them for any activity or event, is they're, I, I think they're just a little too low to the ground. I don't know if people were shorter back then or what. But you, you sit in these chairs, and I don't know about for you, but for me, after about 15 minutes sitting in one of these metal chairs, what starts to happen? Leah, your back starts to hurt, sure. Yeah, but my leg starts to fall asleep. Did you ever just have your leg or your arm fall asleep? You know, this used to happen when my wife and I were, were dating. And I used to, I'd joke with her when we were young and in love, you know. And I'd put my arm around her and, you know, she'd fall asleep. And what would happen on your arm, you know, you're, you'd fall asleep. And all of a sudden, you know, you'd get up and you'd be like, you know, your arm doesn't work right, your leg doesn't work right. The Hebrew word that's used here for paralyzed is the exact word that we use for one of our limbs falling asleep. Here we have something that's perfectly functional and should work most of the time it seems to, but all of a sudden we fall asleep or all of a sudden it goes to sleep while we're sitting and listening intently and we get up to leave Berean ABF and we're dragging a leg behind us because it doesn't work right. That's the word that the prophet is using here. In the hands of corrupt leaders who are out for their own power, their own platform, their own political gain, the law is rarely meted out with what is right, just, and good for all people. This is certainly the case with King Jehoiakim, and it remains the case in many instances today. The law by itself is insufficient to answer the problems of evil and injustice. When evil and injustice is as pervasive as it was then and is now, the law by itself is often drowned in a flood of self-indulgence, the pursuit of power, pride, the disregard for human life, and a disregard for the flourishing of all people. One biblical scholar has said it this way, quote, Good order cannot be legislated out of chaos. And the problem Habakkuk faces is not that good people have resolved to do nothing. Habakkuk is actually trying to do something. Rather, the problem is that good people who have resolved to remain faithful were overcome by rising, forceful, recurring waves of injustice. When leaders misuse, misapply, and misappropriate the law for purposes of intimidation, manipulation, or personal or political gain, justice will always be bent or perverted. And so the prophet cries out, and perhaps today we might cry out as well, how long, O Lord? Perhaps with the psalmist we would even sing, I lift my eyes up from the hills. Where does my help come from? Lord, are you listening? Will you do anything? Save us. The response that Habakkuk will get, friends, it lands as a shock, to be honest, right? And we already read it. But it lands as a shock for Habakkuk. It lands as a shock for we who are the church today. And it is a reminder that God does not always act as we expect or anticipate and sometimes the way that God responds from our very limited vantage point. Let's remember that. We are here. The Bible describes our lives as but a vapor. 
And so we're reminded that our vantage point is very limited. We have a limited perspective. And from our limited perspective, sometimes God's ways may seem to directly contradict his very nature as we can best understand it in our humanness. Habakkuk does not understand God's response. He is very much wrestling with it. God is asking Habakkuk to look outside of his present difficult circumstances and realities in order to see how God may be working in other spaces and other places. Where does God direct Habakkuk's attention? Look at verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. Now it's important to make note here that in the imperatives in verse 5 are plural. Which means that when God responds to Habakkuk's complaint, he's not only responding to Habakkuk, but he's responding to the entire southern nation of Israel. God's response isn't just for the people who share in the pain and distress that Habakkuk is feeling, but his response is also for the people within the kingdom who are practicing and perpetuating these injustices. God's response is for the nation. And his first directive is what? Get your eyes off yourself and look around. Israel was not the only nation in the world where God was at work. Friends, we would do well to remember today, America is not the only nation in the world where God is at work. This is a big world with many countries. And we should be, and we can be thankful to be American. We can be patriotic. We can honor our servicemen, and we should honor our servicemen and women who demonstrate ideals of sacrificial love by laying down their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy. We can and we should hang flags and sing songs and celebrate freedoms. However, we cannot think for one moment that this is the only place where God is active and at work in the world. God's first Move for Habakkuk is to get his eyes off of his nation to look around at the way God is working through and in other places. What we find is that Israel was not above falling and coming under captivity, judgment and condemnation due to sin and injustice. And friends, the reminder, the sobering reminder is neither are we. So God's first redirection to the people of the southern kingdom is to get their eyes off of themselves and look around at other nations, perhaps even being surprised or astounded at the reality of how God was at work in and through other places. But then look at what God says in verse 6. What does he say? I am doing a work. I am doing a work. So first, look around at the other nations. Get your eyes off yourselves. And second, take a look at what I am doing. It's utterly unbelievable. God's revealing his plan. Look at the first line of verse 6. This is difficult, 
but this is what he's doing. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Now, friends, we know God's justice is perfect. We know his judgment is always given according to his good and right purposes for humanity. It's one thing to say that we know this, but it's an entirely different thing to say we believe it to be true and to live in a time when God's justice and judgment arrives upon us at the hands of a near or foreign enemy and still live as though we believe it. This is one of the core tensions that Habakkuk will wrestle with and bring us face to face with in his prophecy. Our belief in the reality that our God is wholly righteous, completely just in all that he does, does not resolve the tension that arises from our limited vantage point when we realize that we cannot make sense of how God is governing and directing the affairs of all the other nations in the world. Perhaps this is especially difficult when God's governance and direction among other nations has a direct and negative effect on our own nation and our own people. We are often quicker to identify God's justice and judgment against others whom we disagree with or consider our opposition while remaining much less willing to admit that God is working out his justice and judgment when we ourselves face opposition and oppression at the hands of others. This is why the prophets were not very popular people, friends. One biblical scholar said it this way. It's very intriguing. He said, quote, The prophets refused the easy an almost universal practice of identifying God's rule exclusively with the policies of their own country. They often dared to identify God's justice with the enemy, a claim that would be regarded as seditious and unpatriotic today as it was in Habakkuk's day when his contemporary Jeremiah was in prison for espousing the very same thing. End quote. So desperate times in the southern kingdom call for desperate measures. God is raising up and empowering another nation to render judgment upon his people. And he begins to reveal and to give description of what this other nation is like. Judean injustice will be fairly and rightly held accountable by God. He will judge people for their sin. And by this judgment, he'll also ultimately play a part in their eventual restoration. Now, verses 6 through 11 describe the character of the Babylonian nation. And it's using very familiar terminology. It's using terminology that's connected with ancient Near Eastern political strategy and military tactics. One of the first ways that the Babylonians are described is in verse 6. They sweep across the surface of the earth, seizing dwelling places that do not belong to them. And this pattern, friends, of greed, it's embedded in our human DNA from our earliest ancestry. As Adam and Eve took what was not theirs, leading to the unraveling of perfect shalom in Genesis... We see this in the character of the Babylonian people, the same greed in verse 6. What follows is verse 7. Those 
are ruthless and those who are greedy, they take things that don't belong to them. They're often seen as frightening and terrifying people. And this is the way the Judeans would perceive the Babylonians, frightening, terrifying. Look at verse 7. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In the NET translation, it says they decide for themselves what is right. They are a law unto themselves. And though the law cannot truly and wholly legislate morality, some law codified and agreed upon by a people is better than no law at all, or a law that's only determined and known by those who are currently in power. And that was the way the Babylonians operated. Verse 8 describes their military might. They proved to be fast and fierce, devouring their enemies quickly. And verse 9 describes the orientation of their hearts. Look at what it says in verse 9. They all come for violence. All of their faces, which way? Forward. Now watch what's happening here. Again, this is where we lose some things in translation from the Hebrew to the English. The literal Hebrew wording here says the totality of their faces is to the east. And in the ancient Near East, if one was facing west, it was perceived that they were facing God. To face east was to turn one's back on God. In the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the direction east is always associated with judgment, separation, and disobedience. While the west is associated with promise, hope, obedience. When a people or a nation have turned their back on God, all kinds of sordid behaviors follow closely behind. The result of this misguided orientation of their hearts is that the Babylonian people are quick to enslave, they're quick to take captive, they're quick to make prisoners of their opposition. Verse 10 reveals that they were no respecter of other nations, kings, or leaders. And the walls and fortresses of other cities and towns were seen as nothing but further obstacles to conquer and overcome. It could be that the word fortress in verse 10 has a few different meanings. We could be talking about the literal fortress or figuratively we could be talking about justice or even God. And the language, it's very interesting here, referring to piling up earth and taking it, again, is ancient Near Eastern military language. The quickest and most effective way back then to overcome a wall or a fortress was for the nation that was coming against them to go and to chop down all the trees that surrounded that wall and to pile up all of the earth so that it would reach the top of the wall and essentially they would have a ramp to climb up to get into the city. Verse 10 suggests that the Babylonian military was skilled at this practice. Finally, verse 11, it describes that they were like the wind the Babylonians know no territory. They know no boundaries in terms of their military advancement. They are compared to the wind passing through, bringing death and destruction, and swiftly moving on to their next obstacle. But, but, we are reminded that guilty are the ones whose own strength and honor is their God. And even the Babylonians will one day have to give an account for how they have handled their God-ordered empowerment. 
And as we sit in this moment, church, and as we consider that God would empower a people that were so ruthless and so completely turned away from him, we may feel a bit of tension. And in this tension, we find ourselves, if that's tension that you're feeling today, we find ourselves, you find yourself sitting squarely with the prophet Habakkuk. And yes, we're going to see this next week. This tension leads Habakkuk into a bit of a crisis of faith. It's one that's going to require him to do some soul searching and have even further dialogue with God. And next week, we'll see how Habakkuk responds and how he expresses himself when he's faced with this new and difficult reality. But before we go there, we ask this final question. How might these realities that we've read and explored together today move us forward in a greater love for God and a greater love for one another? Where does this all leave us? And while there's much to consider, just a few observations for us to take home today. Habakkuk was courageous. He was humble. He was clear-minded enough to recognize and call out the sins present among his own people. The prophecy begins with Habakkuk bringing an indictment against the southern kingdom, his own nation. And friends, I'm reminded it takes more courage to recognize and deal with our own sins than to call out and identify the sins of others. Habakkuk reminds us that it is to it is better to be humbled and challenged by our own sins than to be proud of our well-doings. And when Habakkuk is distressed and in turmoil over the sins of his own nation and his own people, where does he go? He cries out to God. He didn't try to excuse it, to justify it, to make accommodations for the sin that he saw. He desired both accountability and justice from God. He waited on the Lord's answer. And we see that when God answered, his plan is not always as we might anticipate. However, we as a community of Christ followers living in the age of the church have a benefit that Habakkuk did not yet have. We can look and hold on to the hope of Jesus, knowing that our eternal hope and our eternal future is secured in a relationship with him. As our team comes to lead us in a final song, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. We thank you for its power. We thank you for the example of the prophets, for their courage, for their bravery. Lord, many of these men were hated by their own people in their own nations. Many of them had to live destitute lives, Nobody wanted to hear what they had to say. No one wanted to look upon their own sin. And yet, Father, we see the way that you have worked through their ministry as they were your mouthpieces. And you spoke to them, through them, to your people. You brought conviction. You brought judgment. And Lord, sometimes you did it in ways that we would not inspect or anticipate. But you've always done it in ways that are consistent with your character. Even when we might not be able to fully see and understand how. Give us faith, Lord, to trust that you are always acting and working exactly how you say you will. 
Lord, help us to look to Jesus when we're confused, when all we can see is chaos, when all we feel is hopelessness. Let Jesus be the light that gives us hope, that anchors us to the sureness of your word. And may you be glorified by the way that we live and we love in the communities you've placed us in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.